Well, as we begin today, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter number 7. Hebrews chapter number 7. And we're going to be looking at this particular text this morning to remind us of where we've been as far as our study. Uh, Last week in our confessional study here of chapter number 8, we spent the majority of our time dealing with Christ as the mediator. And today we're going to kind of further that along a little bit and deal today with another aspect of this mediatorial office, uh, which is Jesus as the surety. And uh, Jesus as the surety. Now I will tell you we'll be spending uh, some time on this uh, because this particular principle, this particular truth uh, will not be able to cover in just one day, but we are uh, going to begin that this morning. In Hebrews chapter number 7, beginning there in verse number 1, the Bible says, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest of forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent." Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Last week we dealt a bit with the reality of the appointment of Christ as mediator. And we dealt a little bit with the requirements of that mediator, how that Christ himself could be the only one who could meet the requirements of of that particular office. This morning we kind of build on that particular truth and even there in chapter 8 of paragraph 1 of our confession, remember it said, it pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both to be the mediator between God and man. So we spent our time last week dealing with the evidence scripturally that shows us how Jesus Christ could, had to be the only one who could fulfill the office as mediator. We've talked a little bit about how in this covenant before the foundation of the world between God the Father and God the Son, that Christ was ordained to these offices of prophet and priest and king. 
Now, these are not just offices that are given to Christ just simply so he can have a title. Those three offices, the threefold offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, are all given to him in order to save a people for himself. In other words, if we were to drop one of those offices from Christ, in other words, if he was to not be prophet but priest and king, or he was to be prophet and king and not priest, he would cease to be able to be the mediator, and he certainly would be impossible to be named a surety. So it's important as we think about these things, in order to fulfill the requirements of what Christ had to do, there were two things involved in this covenant, the requirements and the promises. Requirements. The Father, God the Father, required certain things of the Son. In other words, God said, these are what Christ must do. These are the requirements. The requirements to do what? The requirements for the Son to secure the salvation of those the Father had given Him. In order for Christ to fulfill that work, prophet, priest, and king, those requirements that must be completed were in order to secure the salvation of those whom the Father had given Him. We cannot separate between who the Father has given and who the people are. Very important. The Son, in agreement to these requirements, had to not only agree to do this, but he also had to be successful in completing the work. It's one thing to be able to say, I agree to this. It's another thing to be able to complete what you've agreed to do. That's part of that covenant. So Jesus Christ had to perfectly fulfill all the requirements that the Father laid upon him. So the Father, by requiring certain things of the Son, made certain promises to the Son based upon the Son's success. The Father says, here are the requirements and here's the promises that I'll make that upon your successful completion of these things, these are the things I will give you. Now, part of that particular requirement of the Father was that His Son, Jesus Christ, had to become a surety. Okay? Now, we looked at those, we read a lengthy passage there in Hebrews 7, but I want to draw our attention back to uh, verses 20 through 22. Because you'll notice here, it says, And as much as not without an oath, He was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath. But this with an oath by him that said unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. So Hebrews 7 there is showing us that a, a surety is one who voluntarily enters into this covenant on behalf of someone else. That's ideally what the definition of a surety is. I am entering into a covenant on behalf of another person. In other words, that surety is a representative of another person. Notice it says that Jesus was made a surety of a better testament. So the requirement that the Father put on Christ was to be and to do and to act 
on the behalf of sinners. You and I. He must, Jesus, must become man in order to act on man's behalf. In other words, he had to become man in order to act on man's behalf. That's the incarnation. That is his taking on that robe of human flesh without ever ceasing to be God. That's the realities of what we're talking about here. So he not only takes on the human nature. Now this is where it really starts to get even a little bit more involved. When we, when we sing about Jesus taking on human nature or even speak about Jesus taking on human nature, we're not just talking about that alone. He's also, by doing that, he's taking on all of the legal obligations that are required. A surety is not only acting on the behalf of another, but they're also taking on legal requirements. So what are those legal requirements? Jesus as a surety, must take on everything that's required of the person that he's representing, which in this case is sinners. So what is the legal verdict that is pronounced against sinners? The wages of sin is death. So that legal, God's legal de declaration against sinners is that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. And there is a legal requirement in order for that, those requirements to be met. And those are, those are only going to be found as Jesus Christ fulfills those obligations. Here's what we know about the sinner. The sinner cannot act on behalf of himself. He cannot offer anything on behalf of himself to pay for the legal obligations and the verdict that is standing before him. He, can't, he cannot offer anything of his own that says, I'm going to pay for my own obligations. Why? Because man can't keep the law. Because man can't keep the law, Jesus Christ has to do for the sinner what the sinner cannot do for themselves. So the Father's requirement was is that Jesus Christ had to become that surety, that representative, not just bodily, but also legally. In a sense, they're not even able to pay the penalty for sin on their own. The surety, Christ, must do that for them. Can a sinner give themselves a new nature? The answer to that question is obviously no. Can't change his own stripes. He can't change his own nature. Only Christ can do that. When we start talking about the legal ramifications and legal changes that must take place, we're not just talking about Jesus' incarnation by taking on human flesh. We're talking about he's, not all, he's taking on that representative to perform all these things that the sinner can't do for him, himself. That's what a surety is doing. That's what a, a surety is about. He does it for them. So when were these requirements laid down? The requirements for what Jesus must do was laid down in eternity past. This was not a plan after man's sin. This was a plan that was in place before man was ever even put on this earth. 
The requirements that God gave to the Son were with regard to the sinner. When we see in Scripture the work that the Father gave to the Son to do, the work that the Son was given to do, that Jesus voluntarily agreed to, was fulfilling the requirements that God had placed in this covenant of redemption or this plan of saving people for Himself. So that was the requirements. What did Jesus? What was? What did God the Father promise? If this occurred, He promised eternal life. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Titus, chapter one, the very first two verses, makes mention of this. Titus chapter number one, verses one and two. Paul, writing to Titus, says, "Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect." and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. This promise that God the Father made was a promise that was made to the Son. If you fulfill the work, the requirements of this, the promise that I will give is the reward of eternal life. It's, it's not by... Uh, coincidence that the little phrase that God cannot lie is in that verse. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. The promise of eternal life was given and made if the requirements were met by Jesus Christ of eternal life to the people that he was representing. Who was Jesus representing? Sinners. God the Father says, Jesus, my Son, in whom I'm well pleased, fulfills the requirements of a surety. As he does that, fulfills the requirements, the result will be, I will give eternal life unto all those that I've given to him. Is everybody seeing the connection here? All these things are coming together, and we're, we're theologically beginning to ask ourselves the question, but could Jesus Christ have failed? I want you to hold on to that thought if you're thinking that. If you're not, well, now you are. But that's the thought here. Could Jesus have failed in his requirements? Well, based on what we learned last week about his promise of his ability to fulfill the office of mediator, there's no way he could fail. Because he was already scripturally, we learned last week, that he had to be the mediator. So if he's the only mediator, and that's the only remedy, then there's no way he could fail in his responsibility of living up to the requirements that God the Father required. Got all that? Kind of a mouthful. But that's, that's God cannot lie. Eternal life was promised, folks, before the world ever began. It wasn't a promise made after mankind sinned. It was a promise that was made from God the Father to the Son. That's why there's so much interaction. Even when we studied the book of John, there's so much interaction between Jesus referring to His Father and the Father referring to the Son. This is what they were talking about. They weren't dealing with just temporal things. They were dealing with eternal things. They were dealing with the reality of these promises and these requirements that had been given before the world began. Now here's what's interesting. If the promise was made before the world began, who was the promise promised to? In other words, the promise was being made of eternal life. It couldn't have been promised to us directly because we didn't live. 
So God the Father made a promise to the Son, which is a remarkable thought. So by whom and to whom was the promise made? The promise was made by the Father to the Son. By the Father to the Son for those or on the behalf of those whom the Father had given to the Son. God the Father makes the promise to the Son. The Son is the representative who's going to act on behalf of the sinners. Following the logic here. So now you see this happening and you, you can almost see this right before our eyes. So that when we see passages like John 10, verses 27 through 29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. When Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life, he's referring back to that very promise before the world began, which we read in Titus, that God the Father made to the Son. When you start seeing phrases like eternal life, understand that that initial promise was not made to man. That initial promise was made to Jesus Christ as a surety. Now you say, why is that a big deal? Because there's a lot of times where in our modern gospel, which isn't a gospel at all, and, and pardon this expression, we're taking out the middleman. We're making salvation. This is a promise God the Father's made to me. God the Father didn't make the promise to you. God the Father made the promise to the Son. So it is biblically inaccurate and incorrect for us to say, God the Father promised me. No, God the Father promised the Son that if the Son lived up to the requirements, that the Jesus Christ as the fulfiller of those requirements would then give eternal life that was given by the Father to those He represents. And you say, that's just a subtle thing. It's not worth splitting hairs over. I would, I would argue with you uh, strongly. It does matter. He says, I give unto them eternal life that they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Now here it is. My Father which gave them me. Now here's another truth we need to understand. Jesus Christ could not make the promise of eternal life apart from the Father. Jesus Christ could never step away from God the Father and said, listen, I'm going to make my own promises. Now you say, again, why does that matter? Because there's another subtle change that's, determined, that's happening in the gospel or attempting to be done in the gospel where man just says, all you need is Jesus. That's not biblically accurate. And you say, then preacher, why do we make such a big deal about in Christ alone? Because in that phrase, in Christ alone, takes in all of the realities of what we're talking about today. If I say in Christ alone, and I truly believe it as the five solas from the Reformation suggest and teach us, that's not taking Jesus by himself. That's taking him as the surety, as the whole, as a result of the promises that were made by the Father. He said, my Father which gave them me. The them there are the people that God gave to the Son, who the Son is acting as the surety or the representative, not just in human nature, but also in the legal requirements that God the Father demanded. He says, my Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. That, that no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand, again, is important because that goes back to the promise of eternal life that was given before the foundation of the world, and God cannot lie. 
So here we see a glimpse in these verses. We see just a glimpse of the realities of what happened in this covenant. That covenant between God the Father and God the Son involved a promise of eternal life. Now again, we're so quick in our modern theology to just make eternal life sound like something so simple and something so easy that all you have to do is accept it. When I use the expression, or the Bible uses the expression eternal life, you are talking about a a whole body of divinity. You're talking about a whole body of theology. You're not just talking about the translation from from death unto life. You're not just talking about dying here and going to heaven or going to hell. You're talking about an eternal life. It's encompassing all of these truths, everything that salvation is. Who's the author of eternal life? When was eternal life promised? To whom was it promised to? Why was it promised? Why was it continued to be given? All these things are part of those promises. And I'm afraid in our modern theology, we have made the doctrines of salvation, we've made the doctrine of redemption, we've made all these things because we're afraid people just won't get it. The Gospel is not a simple transaction it looks simple to us because we're not seeing all that took place behind it now ultimately a person is converted a person is saved by the grace of God and they may not fully understand all these things I'm not suggesting that you have to understand all the inner workings of deep theology to be able to be in Christ but I will tell you this it does matter The Father required these things. Louis Burkhoff made this statement. He said, The Father required of the Son, who appeared in this covenant as the surety and head of His people, and as the last Adam, that He should make amends for the sin of Adam and of those whom the Father had given Him, and should do what Adam failed to do, by keeping the law and thus securing eternal life for all his spiritual progeny or all that the Father had given him. This was not a random act. This was not just something that God the Father thought up on the fly or Jesus Christ thought up on the fly. It's fascinating, and this is kind of a side note, as I'm teaching the 5th and 6th graders at at the, the Christian school, We're learning about some of these basic concepts. We're learning about the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. How to see Christ in the Old Testament and how to see the fulfillment in the New Testament. And that's why when you take these covenants together and you look at the covenant of redemption and you look at these promises made, you cannot forget initially and first of all the sin of Adam. You know, even as we studied chapter 7 of the confession, we studied that in that order not just because it's next in line, but because it goes together with chapter 8 of how all of this fits together. So it's absolutely essential that we understand these next three things. Number one, that this requirement of the covenant of redemption, it required and involved Jesus Christ becoming one of the human race. It was absolutely essential that Christ became man. In order for Christ to be a real surety, 
For sinful human beings, he had to be a human himself. Again, and you say, do we really have to split hairs over this? Yes, we do. Because there are, there are churches, quote-unquote, that teach that Jesus was either God or he was man, or he, but he was never both. And yet, if he was not 100% man, then all of eternal life goes out the window. All of it. You have no hope. You have no promise of eternity if there is absolutely no humanity. Why? Because we learn that he had to have taken the place of the people he was representing. We're going to look at some scripture that backs that thought up. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. This is found in a, a beautiful section that's often a reference to those who are heirs of the grace of God or those who can expect to receive this wonderful blessing. But in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5, it says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, and this next phrase is so important, made of a woman. That's His humanity. Made under the law. This is all a precursor to now what, says in, what it said in verse 5. To redeem them. Do you see the connection? He had to be made of a woman and made under the law. In other words, he had to be subjected to what the law required, which is what? That's the law of God. That's what's required of all humans. To redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. To redeem them that are under the law is to act as that surety to fulfill what his represented people could never do. Which was what? Fulfill the law. And became ye, and because ye are his sons rather, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. This is a beautiful passage of scripture, as they all are. But the Father required the Son to become one of the human race. How is that most logically and most directly proven? By the reality that God the Father sent the Son into the world, not just as God, but to be made or to be born of a woman. To take on the nature, the, take on the, the human nature on behalf of His people. Yet in that great mystery of God, to take on the nature of humans and yet be without sin. Because now you have the other aspect of that in his humanity, but he did not sin. Another passage that teaches us about this becoming human or becoming in the, in the, the taking on this robe of human flesh. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. This is in the section describing him as a high priest, or specifically as a merciful high priest. Verse 14, Hebrews 2. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Part of the same what? 
partakers of flesh and blood. That through death, He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. That verse teaches you right there that if Jesus doesn't die in his humanity, he does not destroy the power of the devil. His humanity on the cross is essential. The Bible tells us right there exactly why what happened. That through death, he died in his humanity, but he didn't die as God. That's so, that's so important. For verily, or, and deliver them who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily, he took not on him the nature of angels. Again, there is so much deep doctrine in this. He did not take the nature of an angel, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Humanity. Wherefore, in all things... It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Here it is, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. To reconcile a holy, just God and sinful people, Jesus Christ, through that humanity, his death on the cross, he made that reconciliation possible. You're still there in Hebrews 2. We've already, uh, we've already, go back to verse number, I think, I don't know if we read this earlier. Oh, we already read that, verse number 11. So those verses, Hebrews 2, verses 11 through 15. Then over to Hebrews 4, verse number 15. This is kind of a reminder of what he just said here in verse 17. Hebrews 4, verse 15 says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. So there we have Jesus and his humanity fully touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knew what it was to hunger. He knew what it was to thirst. He knew what it was to feel pain. He became human yet without sin. So it's essential and important that in order for Jesus Christ to be the surety and to fulfill the requirements of the Father in order to receive the promise of eternal life for the people he represented, which is you and I, he had to have become one of the human race. Number two, it involved Christ placing himself under the law. This is an important distinction. Not just as an individual, but as a legal substitute. In other words, his substitutionary death becomes the verified and confirmed and legal way to deal with the issue. So the Father sent the Son on this clear mission. What was that mission? What was that purpose? It was to place himself under the law, not just as a human individual, but as the legal substitute. Okay, that, that, that's the legality of this, of this theology. That's the legality of what's happening here. He had to be able to take upon himself all the legal liabilities. Now, just from a legal standpoint, in, in our world, I don't want anybody else's legal liabilities. Like whatever you're required legally to do in your own personal life, I don't want your legal liabilities and you don't want mine. 
in this sense, he's taking on all of the legal liabilities of all the people in which God the Father gave to him. And that's an important distinction. All the people God had given him. We saw that from Scripture. So as a surety for his people, he must take on himself, Christ, all the legal liabilities that his people were required to pay. Had they sinned? Absolutely. In Adam and by choice. Right? So Christ, therefore, in order to be the legal substitute, actually has to pay the penalty on their behalf. That's why I said from a personal standpoint, I don't want the legal liabilities that you have or to be responsible for paying your personal liabilities on that. Remember, we talked about a surety uh, a number of months ago about being a surety or a co-signer on a loan and something like that. If that person defaults on that, that all comes back on you. You're required to pay and, and that, that, uh, whatever that loan is through or whatever, you are then the legal, you are legally obligated for that note. You alone, because you are the surety. That's what Jesus was doing. So we can't just say about Jesus, yes, I believe Jesus Christ became a man. He did, but it wasn't just for the sake of becoming a man. He also had to become and take on the legal liabilities, the legal obligations. So what he has to do to pay that? He has to take on the wrath of his father in their place. Why? Because they couldn't keep the law and become righteous. They could not obey the law and be acceptable to God. Then how are they going to inherit a promise of eternal life, which is the reward of the righteous? The only way you and I can receive eternal life is that Christ had to keep the law perfectly. In his humanity and as a legal representative. And by the way, the law was not just keeping the law in deed. The law means keeping it in thought, in word, and in deed. Even if you could outwardly keep the law in every way, shape, or form, you would not be able to keep the law in your thoughts and in your words, or vice versa. Jesus Christ had to be perfect in thought, word, and deed. See, salvation is becoming more and more amazing. It's becoming more and more how gracious God's been to us. A promise that was not even made to us. The promise was not made to God from God the Father to you and I. It was made to the Son. And the Son is taking on all the legal responsibilities of the people whom Father gave to Him. On someone else's behalf, Jesus is doing this. That's why we say His righteousness becomes our righteousness. That's, in fact, what imputed righteousness is. I have no righteousness of my own. But Jesus Christ, as the surety, is the one that ensures that now I can stand reconciled to God the Father because of what Jesus Christ did as my surety. There's a couple of verses that teach us about this. For, uh, Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8. Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8. Psalms is not often a place we turn to see what we think we're going to see, a lot of uh, deep doctrine, but it certainly is there. Uh, Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8, uh, this is a psalm of David. Uh, 
David is praising God for deliverance. And he says in verse 7, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. We know that, of course, as we read, that Christ came to be born under the law, to be made under the woman, of a woman. God, through Christ, came to do the will of the Father. All men are required to do God's will. Yet we know that in of ourselves, there's no way we can do it apart from Him. Jesus' own words in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, He makes a declaration about why He came and how that as He teaches this, He's teaching about what His purpose in coming and how this fulfilled the requirements of the Father. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. He says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then in a fascinating statement, he says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. He was teaching them that those Pharisaical ideas... He he put it right where it was. It better be greater than what the Pharisees say righteousness is. Because they believed they could keep the law. That's what he's saying. He said it's got to exceed that. It has to be far above that. Because that righteousness will not get you anywhere near the Father. John 8 verses 28 through 29. Again, another reaffirmation of what Jesus is saying about being sent by the Father using those exact terminologies. John chapter 8, verse 28. Then said Jesus unto them, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And He that sent me is with me, the Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Christ again says, I'm speaking, sent of the Father, acting and speaking in perfect accordance with what the Father's instructed me to do. That's what he's declaring. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. So many passages that teach us these great truths. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. If you were to give a summary, someone says, if you could summarize Christ's life in one word, as in his humanity, what would it be? The word would be obedience. 
You say, Christ did so many things, though. He healed so many sick. He raised people from the dead. The greatest way for you to describe Christ's humanity is the word obedience. Because if he was not obedient in the very things his father sent him to do, every miracle he did, everything he did would be worthless. Obedience in doing what? Obedience in keeping the law on behalf of his people that he's representing and in dying for sinners, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Christ took on as the surety for his people not only the requirements, but the penalty of the law in himself. I will pay the entirety of the penalty for the people that my Father has given to me. Romans 5, we've learned this on a number of occasions, but Romans 5.19, a familiar passage, says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made sinners righteous. Adam, that first legal representative for mankind, failed. We know that he failed. Every single person who's united to Adam failed with him. You and I fell in Adam. We've learned that. Bringing upon ourselves condemnation. Christ becomes that second Adam or that last Adam who never fails. So all that are united by faith to Christ are made righteous justified and they live forever that's eternal life and then finally this third aspect of this jesus christ not only became human in his nature but he also took on the legal represent the legal the legal obligations but thirdly it also involved him applying or giving to his people all the blessings that come with that The forgiveness of sin is a blessing, folks. When we think about spiritual blessings, and we're going to talk a little bit about this again in our morning service as we talk about uh, in the book of Ephesians. Think about spiritual blessings. The blessing of having our sin forgiven. The blessing of righteousness. The blessing of having a renewed heart. The blessing of eternal life. All the things that Christ has imputed to us on our behalf because of what He has done, they are now being applied to us. That's part of what God the Father sent the Son to do. Day after day, the longer we live in this life, the more we begin to understand that Christ is working in and through His Word and Spirit in us. Jesus went on in John 10. You don't have to turn there. But he, had, he goes on to mention that those that hear his voice will follow him. Earlier in that text, he mentions, he says, Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. We see the word must. That word teaches us that was the will of the Father. Christ must do the will of the Father and complete the mission God sent him to do. What was that mission? It included not just laying down his life, but also 
calling his sheep to himself. Folks, this is not just about Christ laid down his life. Now you do what you will with that. He laid down his life and then he called you to that. That's the difference between the free will salvation and saved by grace. Free will salvation says Christ laid down his life. Now do something with it. Saved by grace, biblical grace, is Jesus Christ laid down his life. And as he laid down his life, he accomplished the work of salvation on your behalf because he effectually called you. There's a huge difference in what I just said. He called his sheep to himself. So we'll finish with this. Hebrews 7, verse 25. And this will, this will wrap this up for today. Still a lot more to unpack, but this will, this will pull this at least this thought together. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Wherefore, He, that's Christ, is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. I love those phrases. He is able to save them to the uttermost. Where are these people that are being saved? Who are these people? Where are they coming from? They are people that God the Father promised to the Son that as the Son completed the requirements would be given to Him. Christ's work as the appointed mediator involved the requirement, now get this, of saving His people to the uttermost. Or we might be more familiar with the word completely. This word, has been, that phrase, saved to the uttermost, has been used to uh, say saving all over the world. In its context, that is saving to the uttermost. That means completely. In other words, Christ didn't do 99% of the work and left the other 1% to you. Saved to the uttermost means I am saved completely. I am saved through and through. Everything that's involved in being saved, Christ not only did the work, but He applied that work to every single one that God the Father gave to Him. He didn't just make salvation possible. He actually did it and then gave it to them. Never ever make the mistake of using this terminology that the Holy Spirit is another mediator between the Father and man. The Holy Spirit is not a mediator. Jesus Christ is the mediator. You say again, does it really matter? You're splitting hairs. Folks, I'm just warning you. There's a lot of doctrine out there that sounds a lot like what you and I believe and what this church believes. It's not the same. The Holy Spirit is not another mediator. Part of the Trinity, part of the Godhead, but He's not the mediator. He is involved in affecting the will of the Father and the Son, but He's not the mediator. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, is acting under the mediatorial authority of Christ. That's why when Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, He will speak of Me. In other words, I am... He is speaking on behalf of me and He's going to remind you of who you are and who Christ is. The Spirit is applying those blessings that Christ had already secured. But He's not the mediator. 
If I was in a class today, I would tell the students, I would say, don't ever, if it ever shows up on a test or quiz, the Holy Spirit, if it said, the question says the Holy Spirit is another mediator, the answer would be false. Only Christ is that one mediator. All right, so hopefully uh, that'll help us. So next week, we'll kind of get in a little bit deeper, uh, some more about these promises, about how all this came together, uh, the promises that were made not only to the people, but then the promises that are specifically made uh, to the Son Himself. And that is actually a fascinating study when you start to see behind the scenes of even what God the Father was promising to the Son Himself. All right, so we'll stop there for this morning. All right, anybody have any questions?